Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Very few people have had the impact on public policy in the way our next guest has, having spent over a decade at the top in Westminster. From the schools our children are educated in, to the rules that govern how our food is farmed, through to the way we look after our natural environment, Michael Gove is the person who has set the policy that governs much of the most important aspects of our daily lives. First elected in 2005, Michael was one of the intellectual forces behind the Conservatives' return to power under David Cameron in 2010, and over a decade later remains one of the most effectual and influential ministers in government, now leading the levelling up brief. Indeed, not one, not two, not three, but four prime ministers have called upon Michael to serve in their cabinet. And that's what makes him the perfect guest for our discussion today on Inside White as we take a look at what really happens inside cabinet meetings. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Hi. Very good to see you, James. Thanks so much for joining us. No pleasure. We've, um, in each one interview we've done so far, we've kind of started just to kind of get to know our guest by asking why it is and how it is you have just ended up in politics. Now, you've been in politics for a long time, but what was the you know moment that you thought, I don't know, when you were younger or is it while you were a journalist that you thought, I really want to be an MP and get into politics? I've always been interested in politics and current affairs. Um, I was uh, a journalist for most of my career and I worked for the BBC and the Times and I thought it was wonderful. I had a ringside seat on affairs. Um, I had a chance to comment on what was going on. But over time, uh, I began to feel that uh, while commentary was wonderful and fun, I had a sort of responsibility to put my career where my mouth was. And in particular, without wanting to appear too sentimental about it, it was partly becoming a father that made me think that, uh, as as Boris once said, you know, they don't put statues up to journalists. <laughs> I, I wanted my I wanted my uh, children potentially to think that their dad had done something worthwhile with mm. his life. The other thing also, which may seem odd, is there was a change in my attitude towards government. Um, uh, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister in his first term, I used to love laying into New Labour. I used to love using the opportunity I had at the Times to uh, go in, studs up, feet first. Funnily enough, in his second term, I found myself curiously sympathising, not agreeing with Blair, but mm. sympathising with how difficult government was. And I felt, actually, it is, it's not, uh, what's the word, uh, ignoble, to be a critic and a commentator, we need to have a tough and aggressive press. But actually, you should be the man or woman in the arena rather than the person in the stands uh, throwing bog roll and indicating with a thumb <laughs> up or down whether or not the person in the arena is going to be a victor or vanquished. And it, was there ever a moment when you first came in? Because like you said, government mm. is difficult. Is there ever a part of you that thinks, I wish I was still at the Times and I could just write about this or... Uh, every day. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the the the, the thing about uh, having the chance to be a member of parliament, and in particular the chance to be a minister, is you do have an opportunity to to make a difference. And as you were kind enough to say earlier, James, you know whether or not people think that everything I've done has been uh, evil and foolish, or wise and good, or something in between, uh, I, I at least know that I've been part of teams, and that's a critical part of it, that have made a difference. And that does give you a, a sense of satisfaction and purpose in life. You're part of a group of people who are attempting to change things for the better. Um, and that, that does give you, uh, every day, whatever is thrown at you, a reason to get up and to get through it. But as as you know, having worked at the heart of Whitehall, as Jonathan knows, as a member of parliament for a marginal seat, for every good day in politics, there's also a difficult one when you face criticism, sometimes justified, when you reproach yourself for the mistakes that you've made, um, and when those close to you sometimes pay a price for the fact that, yeah, you are there uh, a, at the centre of things, uh, but they are the ones who sometimes have to put up with the stress, the absence, the tension that a life of politics inevitably involves. I must say, Michael, um, obviously in episode one, I talk about the first time I ever met you, which was when I was boarding a bus to go over to what is now Kelly Tolhurst constituency. I remember it. To take on, oh, no <laughs> look at this, to take on Mark Rettless, getting on that double-decker bus and having you uh, sit next to me kindly and let me be a sycophant about what an amazing person you had been in the Department for Education. Obviously... I deliberately chose the only person on the bus who would be nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can I just quickly ask, because obviously we're here to talk about the cabinet, but I'm just fascinated mm. with that time. You, you know, you'd been in the brief, in the shadow brief for a long time before actually obviously becoming the Secretary of State. You're pre- we've heard in recent times that Keir Starmer, for example, preparing some of his shadow ministers to uh, learn to be in government, to learn how to govern, because they've been out of government for so long. Did you have anything similar? Did any did David yes. Cameron ever have lessons for the shadow cabinet preparing uh, before 2010? Yes. Um, Francis Maud, who was in David Cameron's shadow cabinet um, and was party chairman at one point and then minister in the cabinet office, organised training uh, beforehand. He set up an implementation unit with uh, a guy who used to be an MP called Nick Bowles. Um, and it was deliberately the case that every single one of us who was in the shadow cabinet were assigned mentors who were people who had, in some cases, a business background in some cases, a background in that policy area to help us not just develop policy, but also consider how we were going to implement it. So uh, the two great heroes, uh, Theo Agnew and John Nash, both now in the House of Lords, alongside people who'd actually helped Labour in the past, like Michael Barber, and then some teachers whose careers I will not ruin by naming them now. <laughs> I think we know one of them. I think we're mutual friends with one of them. I think we do know one of them. Um, uh, they helped me. So we, we prepared a bill, a draft bill. We got lawyers in. So what became the Academies Act? We more or less wrote in opposition so we knew that wow. we could present it uh, when we arrived. Uh, it was also the case, as always happens before an election, that the permanent secretary in the department that you're shadowing uh, saw me um, and we explained to him what it was that we wanted to do. It didn't prevent me making some, you know, big mistakes early on. But I do think that uh, you need to not just, if you're in opposition and preparing for government, think about some of the policy trade-offs. You've got to think about implementation. And, uh, you know, whatever successes we had between 2010 and 2015, you know, the uh, the silent heroes include people like France Lord, Nick Bowles, and, of course, Lords Agnew and Nash. So, obviously, we've had 2010. Uh, the Conservatives enter into a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. What was it like after being appointed as the Secretary of State for Education to go to your first cabinet meeting? How does that even start? Is there a card? Do you have to set time? You know, what's the what's the very basic routine in terms of attending a cabinet meeting? Well, uh, it is uh, suddenly that the, the, the fact of being in government means that everything changes. So, you know, the, the, you'll remember that the process of fo- forming the coalition took four or five days after the election. There was uncertainty about what was going to happen. Then suddenly, whack! The shadow cabinet meets. Uh, David Cameron presents us with the deal. Are we ready to go into government? We agree. He's off to see the Queen very shortly thereafter. He's clapped into Downing Street. For all of us in the shadow cabinet, and for all Conservative shadow ministers, there's the knowledge that there will be Liberal Democrats in government. Mm. It's great that we're in government, but does that necessarily mean that the jobs that we've been doing, the work that we've been preparing for, is going to be you know, there for us to do? And so... There's that uh, agonising period overnight. We're in government. David is PM. But will I be part of the team? The next day, invited into Downing Street. As I go in, walk down that corridor, I know that I'm going to be a government minister, but I don't know what for. I see my Liberal Democrat shadow until just a few days ago, David Laws, walk out of the cabinet room. (laughs) And I think he's got a more senior job than me. That must mean that he's the education secretary. Well, what am I going to be doing? And then just as I get closer to David, who's become a friend, he smiles and winks at me. And I think, hmm. I walk into the cabinet room. David Cameron invites me to sit down opposite him. Next to him is the chief whip and also uh, the cabinet secretary. And David says, Michael, I'd like you to be secretary of state for education. And at that point, it's difficult to put in into words the feelings that you have. There's a sense of excitement, anticipation. Uh, you are then uh, whisked away in a ministerial car into your department. The department had until that point under Ed Balls been known as the Department for Children, Schools and Families. Um, and just a few hours beforehand, the distinctive Ed Balls rainbow branding had been on that building. By the time that I arrived, they'd taken it down there was a new font, a new brass plate saying Department for Education. The permanent secretary who'd been working for Red Bulls just a few hours beforehand was there to greet me. I was taken into the office that had been Ed's and uh, the private office who worked so hard for him then went on to explain to me how I could begin to hit the ground running. Um, And then you're informed 
uh, by your private office that the cabinet will be meeting at a particular point and you know that it's 9.30 tomorrow morning, you have to be there. And uh, they give you the, the red folder uh, with Secretary of State written on it. You can't quite believe it. Uh, there is a sense of, if I'm honest, fear at that point. And the other thing is, there's also this sense, and I think it's true of almost everyone, of imposter syndrome. You think, it can't be me who's the Secretary of State. And then when you walk in and you sit at the cabinet, you think, well, there's my friend David and there's my friend... No, it's he's the Prime Minister. And you look around. And, of course, it was slightly surreal having Nick Clegg there. <laughs> but you also think, we're now the government. And you realise also that the conversations that you have, uh, uh, whatever you say, is going to be recorded in a cabinet minute that someone will read subsequently. Now, most of the time, the contributions from you know relatively junior cabinet ministers, as I was then, uh, are anonymised. You're not really the main attraction. But you look around the room and you think, well, where are the grown-ups? <laughs> <laughs> and you realise, well, I suppose I've got to pretend to be one. Is that still the case now, Michael? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're getting into the cabinet. I mean, on the on the meetings themselves, mm. do you think when you when you went into government because you have you have shadow cabinet meetings as well? Yes. It, for a cabinet meeting in government, is there a central purpose to those meetings? Like, is it because when we read about them in the papers, it will be mm. like a decision was made at cabinet. Yes. And I think we both know quite a lot of the time. I think it's fair to say that decision was made prior. Yes. It's kind of rubber stamped. But obviously, discussions happen. What do you think is the actual point of a cabinet meeting when you when you rock up to the next one next Tuesday? Well, the, there are different types of cabinet meeting. Okay. So the, the standard cabinet meeting would generally have a, a brief look ahead to what's happening in the Commons and the Lords. Mm -hmm. Then. Uh, there would be a discussion on a major domestic policy issue. So uh, the uh, a skills white paper and the future of vocational education or adult social care and how we clear the backlog. And then there might be an additional item which will often have a sort of international flavour. You know, congratulations to the Trade Secretary on CPTPP or, or, or whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, now, uh, the purpose of those essentially is for the cabinet minister who's been working on a domestic policy area in advance of the publication of a white paper or the introduction of legislation to bring people up to speed with it. And then it allows people, uh, other ministers, to make sure that their department's interests are reflected in that. And also, if there's a broader question about the impact on the shape or strategy of government, for other ministers, particularly the more senior or more experienced ones, to offer uh, a perspective on that. Uh, now, it will often be the case that prior to things coming to the full cabinet, that there will have been a cabinet subcommittee that mm. will have been looking at it and working up this material. And it will also have been the case that from number 10, people in the policy unit, people in the prime minister's private office will have been discussing with the cabinet minister and his team the overall direction and shape that they might want to take. So, James, you were kind enough to work with me in the Department for um, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. You know that we produced a 25-year environment plan. Of course. A lot of that work was done, obviously, within the department, mm -hmm. but we had to talk to our friends in the Treasury about how it was going to be funded. We had to talk to our friends in the department I'm now in about what the impact was on on planning and development and so on. So they, they would have had a broad idea of what was coming. And of course, number 10, Theresa May, very keen on making the environment a key part of her time as prime minister. She and her team, including the comms team, took a very close interest in it. Then when we bring it to cabinet, that is an opportunity for people, perhaps people who've had less to do with it, whether it's the Secretary of State for Wales or the Foreign Secretary, to say, well, this is broadly great, but we need to bear in mind that if we're going to launch this, we need to be uh, clear about what the impact is for the Welsh Government. Or we need to be clear that this commitment that we're making on the oceans will have to uh, be squared with our commitments at the UN or whatever it might be. So it's an opportunity for people to, you know, shape a policy which they may not have been intimately involved with. And fundamentally, if they disagree and it is impossible for them to, to live with it, to Michael Heseltine style, walk out.
But that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, but it has been the case that particularly during Theresa's time as Prime Minister, when we had the very difficult debates over uh, how we could get Brexit done, that there were uh, ministers who, once the Cabinet had taken a decision, felt that this was not a decision that they could defend or live with or support in all good conscience, and then they resigned. They didn't walk out. They would, mm. you know, afterwards, depending on the individual, uh, reflect talk to the Prime Minister, explain, um, and then depart. And uh, again, it's important to bear in mind that those uh, cabinets, when Theresa was wrestling with Brexit, particularly the one obviously that happened at Chequers, which led to uh, David Davis and Boris subsequently resigning, but also one that occurred in Downing Street, which then subsequently led to Esther uh, McVeigh and to Dominic Raab resigning. Uh, those cabinets were extraordinary in every sense. Mm. Lasted for hours. Everyone spoke passionate views on either side. So they were a real debate. Absolutely. Were there, were there moments where you changed your mind? Maybe not lost necessarily on the whole topic, but you know they were a debate in the sense that you were fully engaged with it. Yes, there were occasions where my views were uh, firmed up in particular directions, or I had caused to doubt what I thought as a result of particular interventions. So. There were occasions when I wasn't sure about the course that we were taking when Theresa was Prime Minister, but the person whom I trusted most around the Cabinet for judgment at that time was Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney mm. General. And I felt Geoffrey was, like me, someone who had backed Brexit, believed in it, but also believed that in order to get a deal done, we'd probably have to compromise. Um, but there is a point where compromise becomes a bridge too far, so I relied a lot on Jeffrey's judgment. The other thing also is uh, in those cabinets, I also was very careful in listening to everything that Damien Hines said. Really? And the reason why I mentioned Damien is that Damien was a Remainer, a strong one. Uh, Damien also is one of those people, though, who is thoughtful, recognised that Brexit had to be delivered, and wanted to do so in a way which kept the Conservative Party, but more particularly the country, together. And, you know, there were some people, every view is legitimate, there were some people who were, uh, had been Remainers, who weren't really reconciled to Brexit, were going along with it, if at all, grudgingly. Damien wasn't like that. He knew that it had to be delivered, even though it was not something that he believed had been the right course. And so when he entered concerns, or when he offered a perspective, I was always, always anxious to make sure that I understood where he was coming from. That's really interesting, Michael, you talk about those Theresa May and Brexit years. I'm fascinated to go back slightly to when David Cameron's yes. the Prime Minister. He's made it clear that he and the government is going to campaign for Remain, essentially. Yes. How did you at Cabinet, because obviously bound by collective responsibility mm. usually, how did the discussion come up about you and others who were at the cabinet table, who were going to actively campaign for the vote leave. Because I was thinking about the vote mm. leave one when, obviously, I was on vote leave, yes. and the cabinet came over to us. Yeah. That was right after a cabinet meeting, right? It was. So, early in 2016, Chris Grayling talked to uh, David Cameron, and Chris and David always had a good relationship. And Chris said, look, I think there's a strong chance that I will advocate a leave vote in the referendum. And uh, if that happens, David, I want to give you fair warning, then obviously I, I would have to resign from the cabinet. And uh, David said, no, uh, and discussed with Chris and one or two others and said, I'm convinced we're going to get a good deal, but I recognise that not everyone can support it. Uh, uh, I'm going to have an approach modelled slightly on Harold Wilson's approach in the 1975 referendum, whereby we can suspend collective responsibility on this question. For me, it was very difficult because, as you both know, I'm a friend, great admirer of David's. But uh, again, as you both know, I, I'm someone who, right back from my days at the Times, had been very Eurosceptic. I was in agonies uh, about what we were going to do because I felt that, and in fact, I'd said to David and to George years before, that I'd rather we didn't have a referendum because I feared I would be on the wrong side. And I also felt that this wasn't the best way to resolve the question. George also didn't want a referendum. He was on a different side of the debate, but, you know, we were... Uh, I have a very high regard for George. Anyway, decision point comes. Uh, when we look at the deal, David comes back 
There's a cabinet, unusually on a Saturday morning. There's been a lot of speculation. People have assumed that I'm likely to back leave, but nobody knows definitively. I haven't said anything. Mm. We didn't know either, even no. on the campaign. No. And then we go around the cabinet table and everyone outlines their views. And I'm one of the first people who explains why I'm going to vote to leave. And it is very difficult because I outline what I believe, but I know that this could lead to, and it did lead to, immense strain on friendships and on the government. Now, politicians are paid to take decisions. Uh, I'm not asking for, and I didn't ask at the time, for any sympathy over that. There'll be people listening to this who will be glad that we left, people who regret it. Uh, but ultimately, when you're making a decision like that, when you're paid as a minister to make a decision like that, you've got to follow through on what you believe to be right on something as big as that. And around that table, I still remember some of the arguments that were made. And I remember the then chief whip, Patrick McLaughlin, saying, whether or not we stay or leave, Europe will be a feature in British politics for the rest of all our political lives. So whatever happens, and of course he supported Remain as chief whip supporting the Prime Minister. Sorry, he was actually Transport Secretary, I think, at that time. I've been chief whip. Um, that point, that knowledge, that even as we were making a momentous decision, that it, it wasn't going to resolve matters in terms of the, you know, the political salience of this issue, that weighs with you still. And did that affect cabinet meetings going forward once obviously the cabinet had, yes. had made a decision and were there times where those maybe on the leave campaign mm. were not in the room because documentation was being discussed that was sensitive to obviously that referendum? Yes, entirely sensibly and I think fairly. David had uh, meetings of uh, those cabinet members who were uh, in favour of Remain. So there was, there was standard cabinet business, the cabinet would meet, uh, we'd discuss everything from rehabilitation policy in the justice system to, well, you know, what the future of GCSEs might be. But in order to, you know, for the government, for David having made clear what his view was, uh, it was entirely legitimate to me that there would be meetings where those pro-Remain cabinet uh, members would uh, would be together and would reflect on the campaign and reflect on the consequences. You mentioned, so David's approach was to allow cabinet ministers to kind of go with their conscience. Yes. I was interested as well in terms of how different prime ministers approach cabinet, meet ca mm. cabinet meetings themselves. Yeah. So, in, you know, you've sat under, well, almost all the prime ministers have for over a decade. Oh. How, were there differences in approach or do they tend to run them in the same way? There, there are differences in approach. So David, as a cabinet chair, um, there were sort of two phases, obviously linked to the um, the coalition and then the uh, the year when we had a majority Conservative government before the referendum. Of course. Um, and we knew that during the coalition years, quite a lot of decisions would have to be taken in a way, which meant that the Liberal Democrats remained on board. So we knew that there was effectively a quad, mm. David and George, uh, uh, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, who would make sure that we very rarely had, you know, open warfare between right. the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats around the cabinet table. There was only really one occasion I remember when that happened, which was during the referendum on AV, huh. um, when obviously all the Lib Dems were in favour of AV um, and we were pretty much all against. That campaign, the No to AV campaign, also had Labour folk involved and some of the material that was generated by the campaign uh, was critical of Nick Clegg and critical uh, of Nick Clegg for breaking the promise on tuition fees. And I remember Chris Hune throwing down some of the no to AV propaganda on the cabinet table and saying, how dare you? Because obviously it hurt for him that the Lib Dems had had to, you know, take political flack on tuition fees for the coalition and now is being used against them in a political battle. But Nick Clegg, to his credit, and George Osborne said, this is the cabinet of the United Kingdom. We have business to transact. Let's have this conversation elsewhere. Oh, really? Yeah. And when David was there, it, it, things were uh, businesslike and collegiate. Uh, it, was, it would sometimes surprise people the way in which certain individuals would sometimes take positions on certain issues. So on, for example, you know, the Lib Dems, obviously anti the Iraq war, but on issues like Libya and Syria, mm. uh, they were generally, 
you know, very supportive of a, you know, liberal interventionist uh, stance. Then, obviously, when David secured his majority, he was even more the executive chairman driving forward an agenda, uh, a clear sense of how the timing cabinet would be used. And again, he had a sort of sense of when it was right to give people a bit more space. So Ken Clark, for example, because he'd been around the cabinet table before, if Ken wanted to speak on any issue and he wanted to speak for as long as he liked, and sometimes that was a long time, <laughs> he could. So he'd say, David, on Libya, I don't think this is a good idea at all, and so on. Um, and, you know, his experience entitled him to that. And also David knew that if Vince Cable wanted to speak, Vince represented a strain within the Lib Dems. You had to give Vince, you know, his space and his head. He sort of had that fingertip feeling. And similarly, he also knew that people who represented what one might call the more traditional right of the Conservative Party, like uh, Owen Paterson and IDS, they needed to be given their head as well. And those of us who were generally, you know, David's supporters and so on, knew that um, we shouldn't take up too much time in order to give the, you know, the the, the big beasts time. Mm. I have to say, I didn't always <laughs> do as I should have done. There were moments when I, my natural tendency towards gabbiness got the better of me. Uh, but 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 you know, but David used it in order to make sure that people got the the time they needed according to the weight and the constituency that they brought to the I table. See. And and ditto when David was um, leading a conservative-only administration. Similarly, he was respectful to you know, people like Ian, who'd been leader beforehand and who represented a tradition in the party. I wasn't there for the first year when Theresa was prime minister. When I got back in, Theresa ran the cabinet in a, a, a very uh, brisk fashion. And of course, there was, a, you know, there was a, obviously a change in her political position and strength following the 2017 election. Um, but what she tended to do was, again, let anyone who wanted to speak, speak. We were respectful of her time and the people didn't tend to yawn on. And then Theresa would sum up. So she was a brisk, uh, crisp chair. And that was a big contrast with Boris. Boris didn't necessarily enjoy all cabinet meetings, but he ran them a bit like uh, editorial conferences on a newspaper. <laughs> so he loved the spark and the flow of ideas. And uh, if there was a particular line of argument that interested him, he would follow up. Whereas Theresa would, would rarely comment on what someone had said until right at the end when she summed it up, Boris would provide a running commentary on what you were saying. He wouldn't interrupt. Well, he sometimes would, actually. <laughs> but what Boris would do is, you know, I would say something or uh, Dom Raab would say something, whatever. He'd say, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Raab said, no, no, I think, I think you're absolutely wrong about that. You know, we do need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it Montezuma said? And, um, the, 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 and, and that made it entertaining. I know that there'll be some people who think, oh, well, that's chaotic. But that is, different prime ministers have different ways of working. And one of the ways that Boris arrives at a decision is he he likes to have arguments made and then to reflect on them. What Boris hated were people coming along and just reading out the departmental mm. script without contributing anything individually. Because I suppose if you're the PM, you've already seen all those points, right? Exactly. And 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 in the, in the run up to a cabinet meeting, especially a big one. I mean, you mm. mentioned the Brexit once. Yes. How much time did you spend prepare? If you, you're going into, I mean, Checkers being the biggest, perhaps. Yeah. When you were going into that, obviously I was working mm. for you then. How much time did you spend preparing for that? Did was it you knew your views because it was such a central issue to your outlook, and you'd obviously been involved since the vote leave mm. campaign, or or did you? kind of call around to people and see what they think or and yes. spend time thinking about it. So you have to be careful because if you know what is going to be discussed at Cabinet, even if it appears to have been reported in the newspapers beforehand. <laughs> I, do, I do remember one particular occasion that a friend of mine may have uh, pre-briefed the papers. But I don't think it worked out very well. No, that no. Um, uh, the, the thing is you have to be careful because you've got to safeguard the... Uh, integrity of the discussion. If you want to be able to speak your mind, mm. then you should respect the ability of others to do so. But of course, you can't sit in a hermit's cell, mm. get the papers, read them, and have a fully formed view on all of this stuff just on your own mental resources. So you will have uh, civil servants 
with perhaps expertise in the areas where your department and this paper overlap. And obviously, when we were at DEFRA, there was a lot of stuff that was intimately Brexit-related to do with the, everything from the future of the common agricultural policy to the rules over the export of you know, meat, vegetables, everything. Mm. Um, so you, you've got civil servants who can help you there. But you also have special advisors, as you were, um, and they're in a circle of trust, and you can say to them, look, there's a political choice here. Uh, on the one hand, I think this is a fair point the Prime Minister is making. On the other hand, it will be personally uncomfortable for me to swallow this. I'm thinking of going along with the Prime Minister. Is my logic right? And then you can tell me, no, Michael, was, it is my advice any really good on that? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the key thing is what you want from uh, the civil servants with whom you work, uh, special advisors, and then sometimes your junior ministers, sometimes the, the person who is your PPS, the MP who's there to you know, act as your link to the backbenches and, and, and the person who also you know, tries as much as possible to keep your feet on the ground. Sometimes you'll share certain things with them uh, if you know that you can trust them in order to, to, to sense check. So when I was at the Department for Education, I was very lucky in some of the PPSs I had then, people like Ben Gummer, Gavin Barwell, uh, both went on to become ministers, neither of them now MPs. But the great thing was that even though their politics weren't precisely my politics, they were people who wanted to make government work. And so when I shared some of my anxieties with them, they could understand. And they also knew the nature of the party and they could warn me off some of my crazier ideas. So, so you say, obviously, about not having things briefed in advance, but you've got the paperwork coming yes. in. How in advance is the paperwork coming to you, or does that depend on the meeting and the Prime Minister wanting you to have advance copy or not? And in Cabinet as well, we have Cabinet, but there's also this term political Cabinet that yes. I've heard mentioned as well. Are you able to just share what that means as well? Yeah. How much in advance you get the papers to an extent, depends on the you know how controversial or how confidential they are. So uh, normally you might get a day or two in advance, you know, a paper on a domestic policy area that you can read and digest. And normally your private office, the civil servants who work most closely with you, will 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 provide you with a note letting you know if there's anything that you you really do need to bring up. Then sometimes there'll be things that you will only get a couple of hours in advance. Now, you, you, you should be broadly familiar with the arguments, but what the Prime Minister or what the Chancellor of the Exchequer wants you to, to know, you'll only get there. Um, and sometimes there's a, a, a lock-in. Um, not a lock-in as in an Irish pub, but <laughs> a lock-in in that, that you That might will, improve some of them. It might improve, it certainly, yeah, well. Um, but you, you'll be invited to come along to the Cabinet or to a room adjacent to the Cabinet an hour or two beforehand to read the document in full. You stay there, they'll provide you with tea. Um, and then when the Prime Minister comes in, you've had a chance to look at it and you, you then all have the discussion around that. And also there are, there are some meetings of some uh, cabinet subcommittees like the National Security Council where it's even more confidential than that. There will be material in COBRA which has a particular security rating. You go in there, you read it during the meeting. You have to leave it behind. If you try to absentmindedly take it out... Uh, then there'll be a gently firm hand on your shoulder. <laughs> uh, Is that uh, personal experience, Michael? No, no, I just observed it at a distance. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, 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 there are different levels of security for, for entirely for understandable reasons. Because, I mean, there are some decisions, obviously, or some conversations happening around the cabinet table where people's lives are at stake. So, Again, some of the discussions that happen, not at cabinet, but in cabinet committees about, for example, our evacuation from Afghanistan, you know. So in, that discussion was done in one of the subcommittees? Yes. Um, a, a, because, it was, Cobra. because it was about security, is that why? Uh, yes. And so uh, on those, what are, what are the more memorable ones of those? Is it, a lot of the subcommittees can be quite a nuts and bolts. So you can send, yes. it, you can send one of your junior ministers to, yes. to a range of those. But what, how, how do you pick and choose... The, the ones of those subcommittees that you, the Secretary of State, need to go to? How do you kind of Well, sometimes you're that? told to. So sometimes the Prime Minister makes it clear that um, a Cabinet Minister attendance is absolutely required. Um, and the, will the PM go to some of them? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So the most secret, and I, and I can't really say much about them, are the National Security Council. It's essentially the, uh, you know, the principal foreign and defence and security policy decision-making body. Uh, when I was at DEFRA, I was sometimes invited along 
because there was a specific issue that was environment-related. When I worked at the Cabinet Office for about two-thirds of the time, I was on it, privileged to be part of lots of important debates. Uh, I'm not on it now. It's not relevant to the role that I have. Uh, but there, you you know, and, and unless there's a very, very good reason, it's only a Cabinet Minister who would go. Right. Um, and then there'll be other Cabinet committees on, you know, big picture items where uh, they will ask the Cabinet Minister to go along. So during the coalition years, there was something called the Home Affairs Committee, which was often a way of domestic policy being uh, pre-cooked before the Cabinet. Nick Clegg chaired that. Right. And again, if, if the Deputy Prime Minister is chairing it, then it really should be the Cabinet Minister who goes along. But often you will have Cabinet committees on you know, specific issues um, which are cross-cutting that require to be looked at, but where a, a junior minister can be the effective person. So you can, for example have the big policy on net zero set at the cabinet. And then you could have the energy secretary or the energy security uh, secretary chairing a cabinet subcommittee at which the, the minister within my department who's responsible for home insulation, energy performance of buildings and so on would go along because he or she is the specialist, actually knows the nitty gritty. If I went along, um, I'd be very quickly exposed as having only the most superficial knowledge of these really important issues. But if you've got an Eddie Hughes or a Lee Rowley there, then they are details people who can provide the cabinet minister who's leading on this with absolutely the reassurance that they need that work is going on that is appropriate. And you do you go through those? Is that week by week? And say you you I guess you get a document saying yes. Here's all the ones going on, and you'll go yes. I'll, I think I need to be in those exactly. So you you you'll be told the prime minister requires you at these, and then there'll be others where if you want to go, you can. Uh, but generally, it's wisest to leave it to the junior minister, whoever he or she is, who's got the you know the real grassroots knowledge of the subject. I want to just sorry, Michael, go back because you've obviously talked amazing about the subcommittees. It's just political cabinet that's interesting mm. because uh, you know you see in the newspaper that um, you'll hear that ministers have been briefed mm. from, in this case, Conservative campaign headquarters. Yes. from Isaac Levido, is someone who will now be mentioned. He's mm. come in and presented what polling says, and there's been a discussion about the strategy for the next election. In that instance, how's the room organised? Who Who's in, who's out the room, yes. and how is that part conducted? Is it a presentation or is it a debate and discussion as well? Uh, it's both. So generally, uh, you would have a situation where uh, before the cabinet meets, a political cabinet would take place, all of the ministers are sitting in more or less the same chairs, the prime minister uh, chairing it, but you don't have any civil servants. You don't have the cabinet secretary. You don't have the prime minister's private office. You don't have the people from the cabinet office, from the economic and domestic affairs secretariat, who take a note uh, and form the cabinet minutes. Instead, you would have people from, uh, if it's Tories, Conservative campaign headquarters, if it's you know, Labour, from their HQ, uh, either laying out uh, the lay of the land for local elections, or the you know the need to wrestle with a particular set of political decisions. And you would have, you're absolutely right, whoever the, the chief strategist is, uh, Isaac Levito, Linton Crosby, uh, the equivalent thereof, uh, and you would also have the chairman of the party, Greg Hans, uh, Brandon Lewis, explaining how the tough political decisions about prioritising resources and arguments were being made. And when you've obviously had the that political cabinet, again, are papers circulating in advance for that one or is that just a simple presentation discussion? And, and I suppose one of the things, key things is, mm. are you getting feedback on messaging and how you can try and entwine what messaging politically someone wants mm. into the work of government? Well, it's important to draw uh, uh, a line between the two. That's why obviously there are no civil servants in a political cabinet and there shouldn't be. Uh, it will be the case that normally you get a presentation, whether that's on uh, the state of the political battleground or polling matters or other questions. If anyone wants to know in further detail, why is it we're doing so well in Stoke? Why is it that our candidates there have such a high recognition rating and such a positive uh, level of feedback and voter intentions? Then Isaac will happily take us through the detailed granular data that shows what effective on-the-ground campaigning can achieve, and we can learn appropriate They've lessons They've got some great it. MPs there, Joe Gideon, Jack Barrington, Aaron, Aaron Bell, Bell and then you guys underline, yeah, exactly. Yes, Aaron Bell, he's the one. 
He's the one. And Michael, earlier you said there's some people, you know, who, especially during the coalition mm. years, who, who, who could come in because they were kind of big beasts, for want of a better word. Yes. Was there ever anyone that you thought, oh, no, not him again? Yes. And could you name them? No. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, is it the case that in there's there people who will regularly opine on all kinds of topics? Is that Well, I, if, if I criticised anyone for that, I would be an even bigger <laughs> hypocrite than I already am. Because... I mean, you you both know me. I'm quite gobby. I've got an opinion on everything. And indeed, like Boris, I was a journalist beforehand. And um, I was involved in the editorial conferences at the Times. It, when, when we were deciding at the Times, you know, are we going to write a leader on this or a leader on that, you know, with the official Times view on it, we'd all pitch in. And, uh, you know, the, the, in an editorial conference in a newspaper, there'll normally be some person who knows a lot more about foreign affairs, um, you know, who'll explain what's really going on in Syria or Sudan and all the rest of it, and probably write that leader. But it's in the nature of a newspaper editorial conference that everyone will pitch in. And even if you couldn't pick out Syria from Sudan on a map, you'll say, well, you know, the really important thing is. <laughs> um, and the problem I had is that having an opinion on almost, almost everything, uh, I would sometimes pitch into those discussions, particularly when David Cameron was prime minister, when I really shouldn't have, because uh, there were other people who knew the subject better or whose political heft was is greater um but sometimes i couldn't help myself michael you said earlier about people almost sit in the same spot when in my albeit very brief time in the department for education which i was very grateful for you sit two rows behind me in my debut at the dispatch box cheering me on uh, and that was quite a person to have behind you i i learned from kit malthouse that there's actually a seating plan yes and the prime minister gets to decide that yes does that basically mean those on the outer edges aren't the favorites no it's it's linked to seniority, as it were. And there's a sort of uh, formula, not an incredibly complicated formula, but basically, you know, there, there are the top jobs, the great officers of state. So obviously, uh, Chancellor, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, and Deputy Prime Minister or First Secretary of State. And they normally cluster around the centre. Sometimes you've got the Chancellor opposite the Prime Minister, sometimes by their side. David liked to have both George and Nick Clegg directly uh, opposite him. Uh, uh, Theresa liked to have Philip Hammond uh, to her left, no pun intended. Um, and, <laughs> well, she had, I don't know if she liked it, but she had Philip Hammond to her left. Um, and then as you go further out, it generally affects the fact that you are a more junior. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your your voice when you speak is is less important. But um, that means that, you know, for example, if you're the chief whip, um, you're technically a minister attending cabinet. And so the chief whip would sit slightly further away from the centre. But we all know that the relationship between any prime minister and any chief whip is one of the most important in politics. So it doesn't mean that person is less important. It just means that in the pecking order, that they're not as far up in the formal hierarchy. Is there, a, when you hear, you just said minister attending cabinet. Yes. Is there a difference when you're at the cabinet meeting of those, of cabinet ministers and this, you know, when you get, because they, they pick, they kind of decide each time. So sometimes, for example, the security minister, mm. it has been attending cabinet and sometimes not. So yes. does that affect, if you're not full cabinet minister, does it affect your role in a cabinet meeting? Um, it doesn't formally. So obviously um, a minister attending cabinet will normally be a minister of state. Um, and uh, in, in the in the rankings, it will be the you know there will almost certainly be a privy councillor, uh, but they they won't be in charge of a department. Mm. There will be you know, their departmental boss will be around the table. So if you've got the Home Secretary and the Minister for Immigration attending cabinet, then the Minister for Immigration will know know that the Home Secretary is their boss. So it's unlikely. I've never seen it happen that that person would contradict <laughs> what had just been said by their boss around the cabinet table. But it's also the case that people are invited to attend cabinet, not just because their role is significant, you know, the government is serious about immigration or serious about security, but because they've got something to add. Mm. So if you've got someone like Tom Tugendhat around the cabinet Great table, man. then you, you, will, you will listen to Tom. And Tom, again, will, will recognise that, you know, He's not going to pitch into every discussion, but he will have something to add because of his experience. And it is generally the case that everyone around the cabinet table, when they choose to, to speak, you know, the, people will, will listen up and respect what they have to say. 
I think it's uh, well. Tom's looking at a big avocado fan. I know from uh, all the photos that he sends me of his uh, avocado on toast with chili you less flakes. So, Jonathan. I'm not such the avocado fan as I'm sure listeners have, have come to learn. But in terms of when a reshuffle takes place, mm. uh, how does that impact a head of cabinet? Does ultimately all your papers just get paused when a reshuffle's underway? Are you told to no longer bother preparing? Do you stop hearing from Number Ten entirely? You know, when that, when that uh, inevitably comes round and. I, I, <laughs> I think you've been through your fair few, Michael. Mm. Um, you know, how do you, as therefore a cabinet minister, are you, are you, how are you able to operate within your department, but also with number 10? Well, reshuffles come quickly. And uh, I remember in 2016, after Theresa had become prime minister, I attended a dinner, funnily enough, for the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, <laughs> and heard that night that uh, Boris had been made foreign secretary and that George Osborne had been sacked. And I thought then that any residual chance that I had of remaining in the cabinet had probably gone. <laughs> but I went into the office the next day. I was still the Secretary of State for Justice. You are until you no longer are. But then on a reshuffle day, it's generally the case that the sackings are done before the promotions and the new appointments. And it's generally the case that you're invited over to the Prime Minister's office in the House of Commons to be sacked. Uh, and then the Prime Minister moves to 10 Downing Street and all the people who are being promoted or appointed for the first time they're then invited to 10 Downing Street. They get to walk down 10 Downing Street and obviously introduced or reintroduced to the public. So I got the telephone call at, um, you know, sort of 9.30, 9.45, will you go and see the Prime Minister in, in the House of Commons? So again, if there was even the slightest doubt at that point, I knew. So I went over. No sooner had I left the office than <laughs> in came the guys with the... <laughs> <laughs> the packing cases and the trolleys and the various sort of books and papers that I had whew, into the boxes, taped up, that's it, get get them out of here um, um, and make ready for, um, you know, the, the new Secretary of State. And again, normally it will be the case that that will happen and then either later that same day or the next day, the new cabinet will assemble and... You know, the only certainty about being a minister is that one day you won't be. Mm. So, you, you know, try and make a contribution while you have the chance and then take the inevitable bullet with as much good grace as you can muster um, and then go and off have a drink with your family. When you had the um, when you have the new cabinet form, we know now the TV camera likes to come in yep. to do the... the vi How awkward is that? Because it looks like everyone's having trying to pretend to be happy, but they're also acutely aware that there's this random camera guy just staring down a yes. lens. And so we all have to cover our cabinet papers. So you you will just see the folders there because, you know, the one thing we, we mustn't do is to have, you know, uh, that stray image, which is often me captured outside Downing Street, actually coming from inside. Um, and then normally the, the, the Prime Minister will sort of say a few things. Boris was the master. Boris would use that moment to deliver the message that he wanted. And there was one uh, cabinet where uh, the cameras were roving around and Boris got uh, us to repeat the the fact that there were going to be 20,000 new police officers, 40 new hospitals. And so I remember this. I remember uh, that. Uh, and so, you know, Boris turned them into, you know, mini party election broadcasts. <laughs> but normally it, it, it would be the case that the Prime Minister would just say, you know, a few general words and then we would all sort of most of the time smile, nod and... Um, uh, tried to look as though we felt as though we belonged um, and then the cameras would be ushered out. One thing that I obviously know, I'm very lucky, in Middleport Pottery in Stoke-on-Trent North, Kidsgrove and Talk, shameless plug there, I know, we actually had the UK cabinet come mm. and have a cabinet meeting at that great piece of this city and this nation's history. Mm. These touring cabinets, something I know Boris Johnson introduced. What is that? Are they good fun? Do you prefer, is that something that's quite yeah, welcomed I, by colleagues? I, I do. Um, the, the, the first thing is that because generally the cabinet, or at least two-thirds of it, travel up on the same train together, it gives you an opportunity to talk to your colleagues informally. You can either, you know, resolve a difference between you and the chief secretary over whether or not we're going to get extra money for Kidgrove or whatever. Um, um, and then um, you can also just sort of generally chat about, you know, how things are going, how you can support one another and so on. And then again... Uh, it will often be the case that associated with the cabinet meeting in uh, in Stoke or in Aberdeen or wherever, that there will be visits related to your brief, which will generally, as most ministerial visits be, be 
fascinating and give you that perspective, that additional perspective that you might not otherwise have had. So uh, it, it was the case when David Cameron was Prime Minister that we actually met as a cabinet um, in, in Scotland, in Aberdeen. Yes. Um, and we also met in in York, I think also in Leeds. And but not Stoke-on-Trent. Not when David was PM. That's David's biggest mistake. I'm sure he'll he'll you know write about one day when he was as prime minister. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of passing legislation mandating that the cabinet meet annually in Stoke-on-Trent. If that happens, Mike, I'll be the first one to back that. I promise yeah. you that. You have a... um, but but also um, uh, during COVID, obviously there were periods when cabinet couldn't meet physically, um, and we all you know the, the prime minister was there around the cabinet table. Few other ministers, health secretary, and so on, socially distanced. And then the rest of us were zooming in. And there was one occasion when I zoomed in from the Western Isles from Stornoway. Um, and it made the front page of the Western Isles paper because it was the first time that a cabinet meeting had, in effect, yeah. <laughs> yes. had a minister sitting around the virtual cabinet table from Stornoway. That's so, amazing. That's a great I, 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 I want to be able uh, to get the cabinet, the whole cabinet, to visit Stornoway. But I suspect that it may have to fall to another minister. That's, to get that that's perhaps your challenge. Final question, Michael. Is the thing that's really missing from Cabinet, is it Jonathan Gullis? I mean, what, don't, don't you think that what that Cabinet Why table... Why are you doing this to set me up? <laughs> what, what is it that this man could add to that Oh, cabinet? my God. Well, there's a lot that Jonathan could add. I mean, the first thing is, of course, I now know, thanks to Jonathan, that before I go into Cabinet, you, you get offered a, a cup of tea or coffee. I now know every time, before saying tea or coffee, to pick up the mug, to look at the <laughs> bottom, and to make sure <laughs> yeah, that it is yeah, made yeah. in Stoke-on-Trent. That is the first thing. Very sound, Michael. Very the, sound. The second thing is, we need youth. Jonathan is, I think, only 33. Yes. Unbelievably. Looking 43, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one of the things you could bring. But the other thing as well is, as listeners to this podcast will know, Jonathan's fearless. Part of the thing about being around the cabinet table is it's a great privilege. And of course, you have to defer to the fact it's the prime minister's cabinet. Uh, he or she is leading the agenda. But while they want you to recognise that you are part of a team, and that is the most important thing, they also want you around the cabinet table because from time to time, not too often, but from time to time, they will want you to speak your mind. Um, and there is no one, I know, <laughs> less cautious. Sorry. <laughs> more fearless oh. in speaking their mind than Jonathan um, and that is why uh, I would always want to have someone as brave as Jonathan around the cabinet table I'll tell you what Michael um, next time my mum texts me whilst I'm in the chamber to tell me off for either slouching for uh, being told off or for the fact that she's had one of her friends text to say I'm in trouble when she's therefore embarrassed I'm going to quote this back saying in the words of Michael Gove so she knows well, well, I just want to say that big, is a bombshell to end the podcast that is a bombshell to end the podcast and I just want to say a big thank you to Michael for joining James and I on the podcast we hope you've enjoyed listening you can of course follow and subscribe however you it is you listen to your pods you can leave us a rating and a review and you can follow us on Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much, Michael. No, thank you. Thank you.